1: Bordered by the Biobío River and the Andes Mountains, the Zona Sur, the southern zone, runs along Chile's lower western coast. It's home to lakes as blue as the sky, steaming hot springs, and dense rainforests. Its idyllic northern area is known to be well suited for raising livestock, and cattle can often be seen grazing in green fields with snow capped mountains off in the distance. Like I said, idyllic. As for the human population, Chile is made up of people from all over. Many come from Europe, including Italy, Germany, and Spain. There is also an extensive indigenous population consisting of nine different groups, the largest being the Mapuche, who've lived there since 600 BC. But they weren't the first. The prevailing theory among historians and archaeologists has been that humans first came to the Americas through the Bering Strait roughly 13,500 years ago following packs of big game like mastodon and bison. They traveled down through North America and spread out across Canada, the United States, and down into South America. These early travelers were known as the Clovis, and we have evidence of their presence by way of the spearheads they left behind. But the problem with any theory is that it can be easily challenged, which is exactly what happened in 1975. A veterinary student visiting Chile was exploring an area known as Monte Verde on the banks of the Chinchuapi Creek, not far from the Pacific Ocean. Some locals showed the student a bone fragment they discovered after logging in the area had eroded much of the soil away. They thought it was a cow bone. The student, though, wasn't so sure. After being tested and verified, the fragment was determined to be far more unique than a simple cow bone. It belonged to a gomphother. A prehistoric animal bearing a strong resemblance to modern day elephants, but unrelated. News of the discovery made it back to American professor Tom Delahaye, who happened to be teaching at a university in Chile. He had a feeling there was something bigger brewing under the soil, so he and a team of archaeologists organized a dig, and they found a lot more than just one bone. Surprisingly, everything below the surface was preserved better than they had expected. The environment had flooded thousands of years ago, and the peat, or decaying vegetation that filled the area, had prevented bacteria from eating away at the artifacts. As they dug, hearths, both large and small, began to appear. Little by little, the soil was brushed away and the remains of other animals saw sunlight for the first time in millennia. Large wooden posts from about a dozen huts were unearthed, as well as a footprint, hides used for clothing and a piece of meat with DNA still preserved inside. That was how scientists were able to tell the kind of game that had been hunted and consumed in the area. But the site's contents didn't align with the current theory on how humans had migrated to Monteverde and other parts of the coast. The roughly 20 to 30 people who had lived there on that site hadn't come through the Bering Strait and worked their way south to Chile. They had traveled by boat down the west coast until finally stopping at Monteverde. These early settlers built tools from rocks and clamshells. They thrived in a way other cultures could not. Well, in a way modern scientists and anthropologists couldn't conceive of. Because, of course, humans have always been resourceful and adaptive, sometimes taking the harder route for a greater payoff. And this culture was old. The settlement and items found under the soil predate the Mapuche in the area by almost 16,000 years. They predate the original North American settlers by over a thousand. Their existence turns everything we thought we knew about human migration on its head. Who were these travelers and what happened to them? We may never know. Some curiosities, it seems, have yet to be answered. to start living yours. Let's get into it. Germany and nearby Austria have produced some of the most brilliant minds of all time. Albert Einstein, mathematician Carl Friedrich Gauss, and composer Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart are among the region's most influential and revered individuals. Within their time on Earth, they each made immeasurable contributions to science, math, and the arts, and those contributions have gone on to inspire others to continue their work. However, some of the more intelligent folks from that part of Europe did not go on to great acclaim. They did not change the face of music, or make earth-shattering discoveries, but that didn't mean they weren't extraordinary in their own right. These people were able to capitalize on that intelligence and go far in life, as scholars rather than creators. One such scholar was Jean-Philippe Baratier. He was born near Nuremberg in 1721 and seemed destined to lead a life dedicated to learning, His father, a French Protestant minister, only spoke Latin to him. His mother only spoke French, and their servants communicated only in high Dutch. He spent his time reading the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Well, reading is putting it lightly. He read them in Greek, then spent years translating them into Latin and Hebrew. In fact, due to his upbringing and his passion for learning, he was able to speak all of those languages fluently. His translation work earned him recognition among his contemporaries, including English Dictionary author Dr. Samuel Johnson, as well as the prolific writer and philosopher Voltaire. There wasn't a subject Jean-Philippe couldn't conquer, and that thirst for knowledge earned him a Master's of Arts when he was only 14 years old—a prodigy, if there ever was one. He'd lived a life fuller than most— Unfortunately, poor Jean-Philippe suffered from a condition that had rendered his body frail, though his mind only grew sharper with each passing day. Those translations of the Greek Bible, he completed them when he was only eight years old. He was even inducted as a life member of the Berlin Royal Academy, where he studied nautical longitude. However, the pressure of his numerous studies proved too much for his system to take, and at 19 years of age, he passed away. The nature of his condition was never known. Jean-Philippe was not the only young genius of the era. There was another just like him named Christian Heinrich Heineken, also known as the infant scholar of Lübeck. Born the same year as Jean-Philippe, Christian spoke perfect German at only 10 months of age. By the time he was one, he was reading the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Torah. He started reading the Old and New Testaments when he turned two, and by the time he turned three, he'd finished them. In Latin, not unlike Jean-Philippe. At three years old, he wrote his own History of Denmark. The King of Denmark invited him to read it before the court, which he accepted graciously. Everyone loved him. They were charmed by his intelligence at such a young age and spread word of his talents all over Europe. He became what some might call a minor celebrity. Christian's family decided to tour Europe with their son as their star attraction. It was around this time when his mother began to wean him off breastfeeding, and Christian's health problems bubbled to the surface. As he gave up his mother's milk, he started eating more grains, unknowingly corrupting his tiny system. Christian suffered from celiac disease before anyone knew what it was. Without a proper diagnosis, he passed away at only four years old. A tragic end to an incredible little boy with limitless potential. But don't feel too bad. Christian saw his death coming. True to his sharp wit, he predicted it would happen, months before it finally did. But knowing him, I wouldn't expect anything less. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com.